Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 7 of the Early Education Show. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And it's great to have the gang back together after a fun week of bonus episodes last yes, we week. We missed you, Lisa. We missed you. You did such a fine job at ECA. Oh, thank you. But really, I think Liam did the fine job of actually putting it together and making it sound like a podcast. Oh, we've got to stop all this sickening congratulations of each other. It makes us sound like we like each other. But um, I Leanne... don't worry. Anyone that's actually met us would know that is so far from the truth. But I do, and I know I, we said this a lot last week. But I do want to uh, formally, as we're back together, is thank Lisa. I know it's particularly difficult when you're trying to actually enjoy yourself at those things for. Uh, Leanne and I to force you to run around and bring us the fantastic interviews you did but so for anyone who hasn't heard them I'd really recommend going back the last three episodes in the podcast feed and on the website are ECA bonus episodes and there's some fantastic interviews with um, amongst others uh, Megan Mitchell the National Children's Commissioner Geraldine Atkinson from Snake which is going to be very relevant to one of our topics tonight um, and Sam Page the CEO of ECA so would really recommend going back and, and some people from services as well you can't forget them. Yeah, that was that was great, and there were bird sounds, and there were trolleys, and, and there were all Lisa sorts yelling of at a plane, which is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so but I do I do want to thank those people that agreed to be interviewed because some of them were running around like chooks with their head cut off. They were so busy, and yet they all agreed to give us the time. Yeah, and look, we've had some great feedback from that. So, but um, yeah, please go back and listen to those if you haven't. They are shorter than our normal ones, um, except for the second one, where you think you've got three great interviews, Lisa. But uh, yeah, please go back and listen to those. Well, let's get back on track with a regular episode. So we'll start, as we always do, with the news of the week, which I think is coming from you this week, Lisa. What have you got for us? Oh, look, it is. It was a very exciting week for news for um, early education and care. One was because Peter Credlin wrote her first article about um, early education, Peter Credlin being um, the former Prime Minister, Tony's Abbott, Tony Abbott's Chief of Staff. But the one that we're concentrating on is not that one. It's one that's written by Judith Sloan, who's oh. known to many... Oh, you've heard of it before, Liam. I'm pretty sure it's in my contract for this podcast that I don't have to discuss Judith Sloan, but we'll discuss that later. <laughs> Maybe you should have made it a bit more watertight then because we are going to discuss her. Judith Sloan hates childcare. She absolutely hates it. I'm sure somewhere some um, preschool teacher did something wrong to her and she's never forgiven. But... It was very interesting reading this particular one because she goes, she's talking about how terrible it is that family daycare operators have rorted childcare and is going through all of that. But she gets down to the bottom of the, the article and that's where it really gets interesting because she actually starts to say some things that we might even agree with. She says that, um, uh, oh, actually, maybe she doesn't, you know. She says... Um, there, you know, not many people benefit from formal childcare, oh, apart from children from disadvantaged backgrounds. And then she said the rent seekers in the childcare sector will mention this as one of their chief selling points for more taxpayer assistance, along with the fact it is early childhood learning that is being provided, not childcare. But she also does make some other points. She says that... Um, 
um, only 2% of the poorest families in New South Wales had their children in childcare. Admittedly, she had to go to New South Wales to so find such a bad figure. Um, but she basically is saying that um, the, the activity test is extraordinarily weak. She wants a stronger activity test where more people could be thrown off it. Um, so really, there's not much in there that we'd actually agree with, I think. <laughs> there's, there's a, it's obviously a plethora. It's a firework of, of early childhood excitement there. It's always yes. so nice to hear from Judith again. So if you feel like clawing your eyes out, if you're an early childhood person, I'll include a link in the show notes against my better judgment. But um, I am going to investigate that contract, Lisa, and we're going to make sure <laughs> that's not discussed again in the future. Thank you, Lisa. We'll obviously have some more fun news of the week next week, but we are going to leap right into uh, spinning off from that news of the week very nicely into our first topic, which is going to be our favourite family daycare rotting fun, which has been hitting the news pretty hard over the last week or so. It's a, I think episode one or episode two, we sort of talked about how this was a favourite sort of stick of the government's to beat. Um so we're going to sort of get into that uh, a bit more in depth this time. And I might kick off with, Leanne, it might be great if you could, I guess, just give everyone a bit of a background or a bit of a brief around some of the issues around this. I'm, I'm going to try and do this quickly, but it's such a long history because the Rorts, which I feel like we should have, it should have its own theme song or theme music, the Rorts um, issue, but the rorts kind of are embedded way back in, in the early days of family daycare and it's actually been operating for 40 years. But I'm going to try and... And has it been quick... rorted for 40 years? Well, interestingly, there's probably been a, a history of rorts, but certainly not over 40 years. And I also want to kind of make a point that this the rorts relate to a very small proportion of... Um, services. So it's really important to, to understand that the rorts are, are focused on a very small number of families um, that are rorting or services that are rorting. And then I'm going to give you the numbers on how much is the rort is, which will fascinate you. Um, and I just as a, as a heads up, remember this number, 123,910 families use family daycare, according to the Australian government in 2015. So just remember that number. Keep, write that number down and remember Hey, I'll tell you what, that's a lot more than there are nannies. We discovered yesterday that something like only 163 families actually have nannies under the nanny trial. Wow. Okay, that's not very many for a... Well, look, let me nice. tell you... So they're doing a lot better with family daycare. They are, but the amount that it's probably costing is going to be much greater. So um, the the thing with the rorts is it's it's it has this quite a long history. But the thing also to remember is there are no free lunches in this world, and everything comes at a cost. So with the history of family daycare, two thousand and one family daycare came into the accreditation system, and the the reason why family daycare started to blossom was because government understood that it was actually a very cost-effective way to build a childcare system. And we had the golden years of planning in the 80s where government actually felt responsible for providing early childhood education and care. And there was proper planning, there was proper thinking around supply and demand. But they realised that they couldn't keep this up. And so 
family daycares stepped into the breach and really provided a lot of um, childcare where it was going to be too costly to set up buildings and, you know, have that capital expenditure. The sorts of things that have been done to support family daycare were the establishment grants. Now, these were uh, sitting at most recently about $10,000, so anybody could get an establishment grant if they were to set up a family daycare service. And that's Ooh, your money big... for Jan, $10,000. Yes, that sounds yeah, attractive. And that was designed to help you with the insurance costs. And, you know, when you think about it, $10,000 isn't actually a lot of money to give to a provider to establish a service because you're not paying for any buildings or, um, you know, it's, it's really actually very cheap. The other thing that happened was that family daycare attracted operational funding. Now, for those who are old enough to remember, long daycare lost its operational funding in 1996. But because family daycare was, you know, the golden, the golden opportunity for the expansion of the system, operational funding was, it, it kept going. And it was to recognise that there was a central role that needed to be played by coordination units. And absolutely, I mean, something like a service that is disparate and spread out, you know, at any number of educators, you do need to have some central coordination and you do need to have some supervision and monitoring of that. So, you know, whether you agree with operational funding being taken from long daycare, which none of us do, um, it really was, you know, going in, into the family daycare um, system. And then you, we had the National Partnership Agreement and family daycare became very firmly embedded in the childcare landscape. So I'm just going to cut to 2014 now and suddenly government decided, yes, the $10,000 startup grants, yes, we've given too many of those out because they went to both for-profit and not-for-profit providers. And the other thing was the operational funding had to be cut and everybody had to prove that they, if they wanted to continue with their operational funding, then they could um, you know, they, they had to be in a very disadvantaged area or rural and remote. And Lisa, you worked on many projects around this when that happened. So you oh, will sure have did. much more of the, the backstory on that. But it's like anything. So people found ways to take advantage of these systems. And so government tried to kind of close the, the gate there on these things. And this is why these things were being rolled back. So then it wasn't this opportunity wasn't available anymore. And then we got the great child swapping rort. So this is really the rort. I that feel like there should be a drum roll there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to try and some sort of rorting alarm bell sound effect online. I'll just see what I can find. We, we do need to um, have the – we do. I still think we need a theme song for this. So this is why I wanted to highlight how many children were in – how many families were using family daycare? 123,000 families using it. 11,000 families were involved in the rorts. Now, that is a very significant number of families. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And the numbers that are being thrown around in terms of the child swapping, I'll explain that very quickly in just a moment, um, the sorts of money that's been lost, I've seen $288 million dollars. Um, $27 million going to one single service, uh, allegedly. $421 million, and then even $1 billion. So it's really very hard to understand exactly how much money has been rorted. 
the idea with the child swapping, which government the government then had to kind of close the door on again, was that services were being established and families were being, um, educators were being recruited to those services. And then basically families were on, on paper swapping their children to claim CCB, CCR, and really not swapping their children at all, keeping their own children and being paid to run a family daycare service. So this is the, the underlying issue is that it really, it wasn't providing a childcare service in any way. It was really just providing an opportunity to rot a system. And it's just such a massive amount of money that has gone out the door and it's taken too long to actually um, change change this. And there's been many reports, and now I, I hear there's, an, there's a, a demand for an inquiry. And now I reckon we, this does need an inquiry into it because it's just that much money. I just wouldn't like to Well, it's certainly been compared in the media to um, the pink bats, you know, uh, yeah. thing of the Labor government and two other, and the, what was the halls one? The school halls rip-off. School halls oh, rip-off. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, yes, yeah. Well, the, the statement that was made around this was some parts of the childcare sector have sought to exploit loopholes. And I just wanted to pick up on that and say, I don't think that it was the sector that was seeking to exploit the loopholes. It was just people who were fraudulently <laughs> exploiting the loopholes. Leanne, that's exactly what I said sector. to the minister this morning. Simon Birmingham tweeted first thing this morning. He said... He'd, he's written an opinion piece on the matter for The Australian and he put it out via Twitter and he said, cracking down on crooked child carers, my piece in today's Australian. And as soon as he tweeted that, I came back at him and said, not crooked child carers, crooks who defraud via childcare payment system, not yeah, child that's... carers. Exactly. Because there's no evidence any of them ever actually cared for any children. Yes, and that's that's exactly right. And it, it does make steam come out of your ears <laughs> thinking about this particular alleged service in alleged Lakemba, where an alleged $27 million has gone into that, probably with no children being cared for at all. And Did then, you of course, that's me been... more than all of that, Leanne. Was what was the that? length of time that it took any government to act on it? People within so the long. family daycare sector were talking about this, were telling governments about fraudulent activity years and years ago, and it, it has taken this long for you know the moribund processes of government to actually act on it. And yeah. I, I do in many ways. I've, I think that it is. It's been a real challenge for government. Now, I'm not sort of defending the length of time that it's taken, but you embed something in law and then, of course, it takes so much time to unwind it and in policy. And you wouldn't even anticipate that people would do this stuff. But the roots of it lie, and that's why I was kind of giving all that background history, the roots of it lie in the issue around not actually having a planned approach to delivering childcare, so there was there was planning at one stage, but then that went out the window. 
there's the there's been a lack of monitoring and the dollars have all gone to the wrong places and in the end it is money that has gone into for-profit expansion effectively not to provide any childcare. So it's just, it is unbelievable. It's a story. Yeah, I think my, I'd have to, you know, just sort of uh, call out initially, my, my knowledge of family daycare isn't very huge. I'm a, a long, daycare, long daycare man through and through, but there's probably only two points that sort of leap out at me with this stuff is, one, I think it, it sort of highlights sort of how, I don't know what the right word is, whether it's uneasily the family daycare sector sits alongside the early child education care sector. I do know there was uh, feedback from the sector prior to the National Quality Framework coming in uh, that was sort of against family daycare being under that. Now, I will, I will you know, call it that was specific conversations I had in the ACT. I don't know if that's nationally accurate, but I have a feeling that the national peak bodies were hesitant about being under the National Quality Framework. I think there's there's a... And, and yeah, like in your in your big history lesson there, Leanne, which is very much appreciated for me at least, um, the 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 role it's played has sort of shifted and morphed and and sits a little uneasily alongside you know more formal early childhood education and care. But I think probably the second major policy point is my, my look. I think this is purely and as as Lisa said, you know um, Simon Birmingham's got an article on the Australian about this. I think they're trying to use this to tie a general theme uh, around early childhood education and care being a complete waste of money so they can afford to... They can then have the public capital to crack down on it, despite the fact they're mm. entirely separate issues. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think I think you're kind of right there, Loom. To me, it's, it's you know, kind of looking at a very specific thing. They're looking at painting child carers as, you know, child care organisations as rotors. And from there, I think they'll start talking about, they even charge you for hours when your children aren't in care. And then they'll be able to start gradually inching in the the uh, possibility of charging for, you know, hours of care rather than sessions of care. So I think it's all a little bit deliberate here. But is there anything new in the stuff that's recently come out? Like we talked about, like I said, it, it was the I think it was our second episode. You know, this was in the previous government. This was the government's card every few months when they needed a you know a, a, something to mask the fact they'd done nothing on early childhood policy. Was you know a big crackdown on rorting. What's um, what, what is there anything new in sort of what's come out recently? Probably just the scale, as you were talking about, Leanne. Yeah, I reckon it's the scale, and I think that they you know every time it would be very interesting to actually find out exactly how much money has been wasted because it's there's so many different numbers being thrown around but i think if it is on the scale of these numbers that we're seeing it's it's horrendous and the amount of money that has been wasted and as lisa said in the time that it has taken um to actually to to pick it up and i think you know i think it's actually the states that started to pick this stuff up more because they were trying to get on top of the monitoring and the the ratings and assessments and as quick as they were assessing and rating services new ones were were being approved obviously you know according to Birmingham though it's all the state's fault <laughs> well I I from my perspective from what I my experience over over time and and I <laughs> mostly observation around the family daycare sector um, is 
that it was the states that actually said we've got to stop this we've got <laughs> you know they were getting people coming through the door i know the new south wales government was getting they were getting like an 18 year old coming in and setting up a service wanting to set up a service with a thousand educators yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so they, they were, and I guess they were in a position to pick that up and, and do something about it. But this is when they did actually say, hang on, you, you know, in in um, in partnership with the peak organisations and say, hang on, that's not, that ain't going to work. Um, and there is something wrong with an 18-year-old walking through the door and wanting to set up a service with a thousand educators. Oh, so you could just say that's very entrepreneurial of them. I know, you're crushing small <laughs> business entrepreneurial spirit there, Leanne. <laughs> yes, Look, the I two know. things, like there's many things that annoy me about this, but the two things that I don't think we've covered is one is what it did to not-for-profit um, family daycare services. Yeah. So as you said, Leanne, not-for-profit family daycare services, you know, trundled along for years and years. There was, uh, you know, I can't exactly remember how many there were nationally, but suddenly they were. there was just masses of for-profit ones that were attracted in by the bonuses to set up family daycare services and apparently also by the capacity to rot. And so what the government did was get rid of their operational subsidies. And for those services, those community-based family daycare services that had been travelling for years and years, that was as devastating, if not more devastating, than when long daycare services lost their operational subsidies. Because whereas um, services could increase their fees, um, to, to cover the loss of that, most of these services couldn't. So some services had to put off huge numbers of staff in their coordination offices in the, the you know, schemes um, because they could simply no longer afford to levy enough on educators to, uh, to keep those people employed. And it happened simultaneously that their ratios changed. Now, whether you think ratio changes to family daycare services were good or not, it happened at the same time. So their income was just cut left, right and centre. Yeah, and and I think that um, you would both agree that the cut to those, they were called schemes and they're now called services, of coordination units, even just getting your head around the number of educators that need some contact and supervision and oversight, to actually cut that is, well, I, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to be alarmist, but it does put children at risk where there's, of course where it there's does. a lack of, um, you know, a, a lack of, of good oversight. Um, and, yeah, well, it's one of this. It's one of the specific issues around it sitting uneasily in the national quality framework, which as I said, because you can potentially have these services where there's one educational leader or one nominated supervisor to, you know, a hundred or more family daycare educators. I've got no idea how that's meant to work. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that even you know, even more dangerous for, for children was the establishment of these services where Maybe someone did run a childcare service. You know, there, there were some of those for-profit providers that did run services, but never had any interaction at all with their educators. Never, never, um, you know, gave them any any oversight. It was just set them up, 
let them go and and do their thing. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we might um, we'll we'll institute rort watch as soon as we can. So the next time we have any rort discussions, <laughs> we'll have a, a klaxon. Or well, I, I actually want to get a graph going of the amount the the amount of money that's been that is is purported to be um, rorted. Because even in just sort of one sitting, I found about 10 different numbers. And the original number that I heard was 150 million. But I can tell you it's a heck of a lot more than that now. Funny that, Leanne, because in our next story, I've got a story of numbers that don't add up as well. Oh, Lisa, what a segue. So we're going to wrap up on topic one. Thanks, uh, Leanne and Lisa, for that chat. We are now going to move on to uh, the discussion about budget-based funded services, so predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander services. For people who heard our bonus ECA episodes last week, episode two included, uh, sorry, episode one included an interview with Geraldine Atkinson from uh, Snake, uh, which was which sort of highlighted uh, you know Snake's concerns around the Jobs for Families package. So we wanted to turn specifically to those services uh, this week to have a bit more of an ongoing discussion. Um, and I think before I throw to you, Lisa, to give us um, a bit of a, again, a bit of a policy background and brief on on those issues, I think we do need to acknowledge here we're discussing um, the experiences and uh, potential impacts on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families, and uh, neither myself nor Leanne or Lisa are uh, Indigenous. Um, we will obviously still think it's important that as a, as a sector we have these discussions, but it is important to acknowledge that we, um, we we don't have that background for... There are a bunch of great resources that are specifically Indigenous. I would really, really, really recommend checking out SNAIC's website, which is snaicc.org.au, so, uh, which is an Indigenous-run uh, organisation which has some fantastic resources and press release and media and reports on all these issues. So we will tackle it as best we can, but just wanted to get that acknowledgement out of the way uh, up front. But, yeah, Lisa, obviously, you know, from your background experience and your knowledge of the Jobs for Families package, but also, you know, being having that discussion with Geraldine, do you want to just tell us a bit about the background of this issue? Yeah, look, I will. But just before um, I go on, I'd say if anyone gets a chance to look at Geraldine's keynote to um, Early Childhood Australia Conference, they should have a look at it. I think you can get access to it online. I'll because include a link in the yeah, show notes, yeah. Yeah, it's quite... Um, uh, you know, it was quite moving what she said. Okay, so what are Aboriginal budget-based funded services? Um, obviously, they're BBFs, they're budget-based funded services. There's um, 334 budget-based funded services across Australia, 80% of which are of Aboriginal. And it's important to note that it's only the Aboriginal ones that we're talking about here today. There's other sorts of services, but we're not going there at the moment. The total cost, and this is one figure that you actually can trust, of running these services per year is around 80 million. So in 2012-2013, um, that's the last year that figures are absolutely available for, it costs 78.8 million. So not much money, really. Um, they receive operational support and each service gets around $172,000. So it's not huge amounts of money, it's you know, small. It's not well, a rort. It's not a rort, no. If someone's rorting, then they're not getting away with much. (laughs) 
some of these services are MACs, which are multifunctional Aboriginal children's services. Some are supported playgroups. Some don't fit a kind of definition, but they're generally designed around fitting the community's needs in which they live. So some of them have got childcare, they might add in health services or family counselling or do work with children's health needs, um, you know, additional needs. Some run parenting skills training, transition to school, and a lot of them have buses, a lot of them have transport. A lot of them are based in Queensland and Northern Territory, including in the Torres Strait Islands, but, yeah, there is some across all of Australia. Now, the budget-based funding program started in 2003, but that's kind of when it was formally all pulled together and called the budget-based funded program. A lot of services started before that, and they were funded just with block funding in recognition that mainstream funding just wouldn't work for these services and that there was a need for Aboriginal-led services. So we fast forward to 2014, and there was a review of BBF services. It came up with a bunch of recommendations, and the government accepted three of them. Then the Productivity Commission um, did its thing in 2015, wasn't it? Oh, the years are running together here. Um, and they acknowledged that there was a 15,000 place gap for Aboriginal education and care. So <clears throat> um, 15,000 children were missing out on education and care if they were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And the Productivity Commission recommended that where possible, the BBF services transition to what's nicely called child-based funding. And um, as well as that, it be topped up a bit by supplementary funding through a competitive grants program. So why did the PC recommend that? Not for very good reasons, basically. They said that current funding precludes new services from opening up. So in other words, they were having the usual bureaucratic problem with some services were getting more money than other services for doing essentially the same thing and there was no money left in the pot if there was new services needed anywhere. And they also said that it wasn't possible for these services to transit, there was nothing there to encourage services to transition to child-based assistance. So the government took on the Productivity Commission's advice. Sorry, this is kind of like so lengthy, but, you know, this is how things work in this um, sector. And they said, OK, we'll have the Jobs for Families package and we'll stop funding for budget-based funded services. It was initially supposed to happen in July 2017, but has now been put back to July 2018. And... Under the budget, uh, Jobs for Families packages, the services that are currently funded under the BBF program can apply for a under a competitive grants program called the Community Childcare Fund, along with a bunch of other services. Now, essentially, SNAKE says it's not going to work. It says that access and affordability to 19,000 um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are threatened. And they got, um, Snake got Deloitte Access Economics to do up some modelling. And it said that essentially under what's proposed, 67% of BBF services will have reduced revenue under the new system. 
And the reason for that is not just because these services are being forced to transition to mainstream funding, but because of the interplay between that and the activity test. You might remember that under the activity test, families who have children who have incomes under 65,000 are only eligible for six, eight hours, sorry, I can't remember the exact figure, of early education and care a week. And that's about 78% of children, of families who currently use BBF services are earning less than $65,000 a year, so will be eligible for reduced hours of childcare. So the services, instead of being able to have their children there for you know four or five days, will only now be able to have them there for one day. And that will obviously make a lot of the services unviable. So that's kind of like the history and where we are now. Um, today, the Senate re released their report on the legislation that's in front of them, the Jobs for um, uh, Families package that's in front of them. And um, essentially the report said, yes, let's go ahead and approve the legislation to put this in law. There were three dissenting reports. The Greens, um, like they were dissenting on a number of things about the Jobs for Families package, but what the dissenting report said about the budget-based funding funded services, the Greens recommended that the BBF funding remains in place, all $78.8 of it. Labor said that the, um, the tr transition process for BBF services should be stopped and direct ongoing support to these services should be guaranteed. And the Nick Xenophon team said they're concerned about the impact the cessation of the BBF program would have on Indigenous communities and the resulting effect on efforts to close the gap. And they said it's imperative that Indigenous children and children in rural and remote communities have access to early child care, uh, early education care, just as children in other parts of Australia. Or more so, so actually. They actually yes. need it more than mainstream <laughs> children. And yeah, look, thanks, Lisa. I, I just wanted, before we get into the discussion as well, so in, just in terms of uh, additional context. So the reason these budget-based funded services, and particularly the um, Aboriginal Child and Family Centres, the reason they're there is because of what we know about the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in Australia, and look, and I'll, I'll be as quick as possible. There's some, you know, statistics that I think we just we just have to know as a sector and as you know people who are working with young children. So there's a couple of key things. The AEDC, so the Australian Early Development Census, um, the data is crystal clear. So Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islander children are two times as likely as non-Indigenous children to be vulnerable on one or more domains. It's two and a half times more likely on two or more domains and one of the incredible things for me the one of the domains language and cognitive skills uh, indigenous children are four times more likely to be vulnerable on that domain than non-indigenous children so the we you know we've talked before uh, about you know the importance of early learning and particularly the importance of early learning for uh, you know children deemed vulnerable um, but addition so in addition to that the uh, report on government services 2016 which came out early this year has some you know, to be honest, frightening statistics about what's happening for uh, Indigenous children in Australia. They are seven times more likely to be involved in the child protection system than non-Indigenous children. They are nine and a half times more likely to be in out-of-home 
care. And those figures have been rising since Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation to that moment. We pat us, patted ourselves on the back and said, aren't we great? The statistics have gotten worse to the extent that there are Indigenous leaders out there saying this is the beginnings of a new stolen generation of Indigenous children. <laughs> Even more terrifying than that, within the nine-point time, five times more likely to be in out-of-home care, if you just look at children between one and four, so children in the, the age range we work with, this is early childhood education, it is 11 times more likely. They are more likely than even, you know, the, the, the rest of the Indigenous cohort. So that's the context. So in, in uh, I can't remember the data was set, but the closing... That kind of would suggest that some of this is kind of important, eh? Uh, just kind of, Lisa, and I'm, I'm tamping down my fury as best I can. So the, you mentioned the sort of closing the gap target. So there was a, there was a target set um, for... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child enrolment in early childhood education this year, to Australia's eternal shame, it was not met, and a new target was set for 2025. We pushed it out for 10 years because we know, well, I was going to say we can't do it. We can. We're choosing not to as a country. Let's just be clear on that. So a new target is set for 2025 of 95% enrolment. So, and looking again, probably this is probably where I'm going to have to be saying. These are my opinions, so I don't want to tar Leanne and Lisa with anything that I'm about to say. But having those contexts in place, they are facts. They can't be disputed. They can't be argued with. For the government to be suggesting that we close budget-based funded services and we essentially close Aboriginal and child, uh, Aboriginal child and family centres is nothing short of... I is nothing short of a sentenced to keep Aboriginal children in the situation they are now. We are basically saying we're, we're not going to try anything to do better. The Productivity Commission, so in Deloitte's report that Lisa mentioned, they identified, or they, they referred to a statistic from the Productivity Commission, so this is not some left-wing think tank, this is the Productivity Commission, who we've sort of had a big crack at before. They identified that if Indigenous children participated in early childhood education at the same rate as non-Indigenous children, we would need 15,000 more places, more, more places in the early childhood education and care system and this government and this package will be slashing access to that. So I am going to say crystal clearly, and I've said this on my blog, and again, my very own opinion, for any early Liam, childhood... Can you stop saying it's your opinion? I think Leanne and I both agree with you. <laughs> I, I, for, for anyone in the sector, be they an individual, be they a peak body, be they an organisation that provides early childhood education to care to be supporting this package with that in it should be ashamed of themselves. And I, I have nothing else. I, I don't know how you can, you can support this package. And yes, you can say, look, I support the package except for this. No, this package is about this. This is about saying the, the getting families to work is more important than our obligation to it. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and I, I yeah, it, it makes me furious. It, and I, I think as Lisa said, Liam, we wholeheartedly agree with those. Um, I wouldn't call them sentiments; I'd call them sort of much stronger than that. But it, it's that um, when I was listening to Lisa talking with Geraldine about this, it just struck me that it's such a small amount of money. It's so small. Um, it's ridiculous. I actually can't and, believe, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, I can't believe they just haven't yeah. backed down on this. Like, it's such a tiny thing. The bloody-mindedness of it, and they're, I just, 
this would get, you know, probably at least somewhere over the line. It seriously might even make me think, well, look, the package still isn't great, but we can probably argue about it. If they just back down on this, the fact they're not just speaks so much to what they think about, you know, this, what I said before, they begrudge every single cent spent on early childhood education. They yeah, particularly I, I, begrudge I it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was listening to, to Geraldine and Lisa, I thought exactly that, what you, you have said about that. And I think it was really interesting, her point, Lisa, that she made about ideology. Because you, you asked her directly why she thought this was happening and she said ideology and I thought that's just that's horrendous. That yeah, is that but probably imposing true, right? Well of course yeah, of course. I what mean, else could it be? She she just called it out and it, it is the imposing of an ideology um, that is yeah, it's it's just screwing it's screwing that whole beautiful landscape of of BBFs and child and family services down because and I've seen those in operation. I've seen some of the work that they do and it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And it, you know, I think exactly what Geraldine said, it's not it's not just about families working, which is what every early childhood service should be not about. Um, <laughs> it, it is about that holistic approach to mm. early childhood education and care mm. for Aboriginal children. Families. And run and led by community. And there is there is endless research that the best programs are the ones that are community led and community run. If you look at um and I'll include a link, you know, the clearing the gap uh, the, sorry, the Closing the Gap Clearinghouse, which is um, run by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, there is just this endless research of the programs that are successful in sort of, you know, changing destinies for, um, you know, for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, groups is the ones that are, that trust Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to get this right and do it themselves. And this is why, you know, when Lisa was talking about government hates things that are, you know, that are funded at different rates to do the same thing. There's a reason for that. It's because they 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 do different things. The communities they're in, you know, do different things that are going to be supporting not just the children accessing those early childhood centres, but the families as well. And Geraldine made the fantastic point in her interviews with you, Lisa, is this this notion of mainstream services and that you know that well you know they just need you know the, the main they'll fit under the mainstream system. They won't and they can't. And it's not because. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and educators and and families uh, are incompetent or incapable. It is because of the you know the the where often where these communities are based, the context of these communities, and the historical you know nonsense that they've had to put up with in trying to get this stuff right. The the idea that they're going to suddenly shift over to mainstream, even with you know a a transition package, is just is is ludicrous. Yeah, I think there's two really strong points that need to be made there. One is that, <clears throat> look, you know, anyone that's ever tried to fill out a Centrelink form to get childcare benefit will know that it's a really complex, hard process to go through, you know. And vulnerable families, which unfortunately includes a lot of our Aboriginal families, will have really huge difficulty accessing those subsidies, even when they're entitled to them. And so what's going to have to happen is that the services themselves are going to have to put an enormous amount of energy into helping families get that funding, get that CCB or um, childcare subsidy or whatever it's called under the new package. The other thing that I think is um, important is that, 
yeah, like we know that it's really important that these services be Aboriginal, be controlled by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because it also builds capacity in those services and in those communities. And you see time and time again children that have come through these services going off, getting educations, getting degrees and then coming back and teaching in them. And that'll just, you know, absolutely disappear. But the other thing that I just think is so important to look at is what, like how much this is costing us as a proportion of the total money. And I said earlier, Leanne, that I had just as much difficulty researching the money that how much the jobs for um, families package will actually cost. The the figures we keep hearing is $9 billion a year or an extra $3.5 billion. But I found figures of $40 billion over two years or $23.2 billion over two years, and that was just on the department's website. So I've got no idea. I give up. I've got no idea how much <laughs> the Jobs for Families package is going to cost. But i tell you one thing. All of those figures had a B at the front of it. Now, I can't even conceive of a billion, right? I don't know how many zeros a billion does has got. I know what a million's got. I've taught myself that one, even though I'd never come across that much money in my life. I've taught myself how many zeros. Billions, forget it. But I go back to how much we actually spend on these things. 78.8 million. And that's on all BBS, not just on the Aboriginal BBS. And even more annoying is that even though this is now being put back until 2018, the little pot of money that goes to the Andrew Forrest services where um, mining magnate Andrew Forrest wanted to set up services that were integrated services because nobody had ever thought of integrated services in Aboriginal communities before, that actually started this year. So it wasn't put back like the others. So we just have trial after trial of new programs, new projects. We had the Aboriginal Child and Family Centres. They were only funded for a short amount of time and then now their commitment to fund them on an ongoing basis is gone. So none of these services ever can, you know, get to the right spot because the funding keeps changing on them. Surely we can afford a hundred million for you know a bunch of services to really do good stuff in these communities. Yeah, and and the, the in talking to BBFs about the transition years ago, you know, because it's been on the it's been sort of hanging over over their heads for quite some time that there would be changes, and because their funding was sort of regranted a, a couple of years in a row, they had to live sort of in the the in between actually secure funding and the idea that they would um, come under the, the system. And in that time, some families moved to services close by that were CCB funded. And within weeks, they had returned to those services, to the BBF services, because they were more culturally um, yeah. appropriate. They understood the families and the needs that they had and and the, the system supported them to attend. So wherever this is, is not going to work, and maybe there are some areas where it is feasible for them to do so, as it says in the, the review, it's it means that children will not have a place in an early childhood setting. Those Aboriginal children will not 
access early childhood education. And as you say, Liam, then that's, you know, the stats are going to be even worse. Yeah. And the, the, the government would argue that, you know, they've set up a childcare safety net under which these programs can compete for funding, for some level of operational funding to bulk up their mainstream funding. But the problem with that is that they'll be competing with a bunch of other services, you know, all for this very small pot of money. Not to mention the administration that, that goes yeah. with that. And it's submission-based, yeah. you know, and so and those I think services there was, that are better at submission writing will get the money. Well, I think there was also going to be some support in place for the submission writing, but... That's more money, like, <laughs> just, and it'll be it'll be big money because it'll be consultants giving advice to people to write submissions. Yeah. So why yeah. not just give the money in the first place? Can yeah. I just can I just say one more point? I just wanted to quote from the two thousand and fourteen review. Right, this was the review that the government, you know, um, commissioned to tell them what to do about BBF services. It said. It is important to acknowledge that operating a CCB-approved service is not sustainable in some communities and only a small number of BBF services are likely to be able to transition to CCB approval under current arrangements. So their own report said, hey, guys, this ain't going to work, and yet bloody-mindedly they've gone down this path for a small amount of money. I think, Leanne, it has to come back to that ideology. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. So I feel like all we've done is point out how hideous this is, but I think with this discussion, honestly, I don't I don't know what else you can do given that. Um, it just seems to be... Uh, it seems to be something the government's going to press on with. What I will say, so uh, Geraldine... Well, no, no, because <laughs> the government doesn't have the numbers in the Senate. And if Greens and Labor and the Xenophon team can be persuaded, you know, to actually block this part of it... Yeah, which know, is what then... I was going to say. So I think uh, Geraldine from Snake in her chat with you, Lisa, was, you know, because you asked a very good question, you know, what do we do yep. now? What does the sector do? She said, you know, advocacy, take action, know this stuff. If this is the first time you're hearing about this issue, um, you know, go to Snake's website, read their reports. I'll include a link to uh, their their um, their submission to the to the Senate inquiry. I think I might have done that in a previous episode, but um, it's really important to know this stuff. The stats are stark; they are terrifying, and we have a responsibility, I think, as um, as early childhood educators in Australia, to to go above and beyond to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children um, either working directly with us or not who in, in these you know rural and remote areas where predominantly you know th this funding is the most needed but um, we'll include links to all that and um, we yeah we'll be as again with, all, with a lot of these ongoing topics we will continue to touch base and and uh, see where this you know progresses as the jobs of families package goes back before the parliament at some point <laughs> But we might begin to wrap up. We've gone long again, but again, these were two, you know, pretty uh, interesting and um, important discussions. But we might move on to our recommendations of the week. So this is just where we sort of suggest something to watch or read or listen to or something to engage with uh, for the week. So I might turn first to you, Leanne. What have you got for us this week? Well, this week I've, I feel like I um I, I was banned obviously from a conversation article, so. Um, <laughs> pleased to say that well it's not that. Thank you very much. 
Um, but this is the this is a, a, the Global Education Monitoring Report Gender Review, the 2016 Gender Review, and uh, it's just look, it's just an interesting read. It's a it's a nice looking report as well. So it's always good when you get a nice looking report. But it oh, works I like pretty the... reports, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's got some little pictures in it. Um, it works to the Sustainable Development Goal number four, which was to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promotion lifelong learning for and promote lifelong learning for all, which is precisely what we've been talking about um, all evening, really. But it's looking at gender parity and it comes up with an interesting point that there is gender parity in early childhood education programs across the world, particularly in these disadvantaged countries, but participation levels are still not good enough. Now, I, I remember some time ago there was a gender parity issue in preschools in New South Wales where less, less there girls... There still is. Attending. There still is. Um, yeah. But this, I just found it interesting that there, there was this statement that there was gender parity, but there was a startling point in there which really, really you know, made it very clear that there are 15 million girls out of school. They, there were 15 million girls out of school in 2014 who are never expected to enrol ever. Mm. And I thought, wow, that, you know, it really, we've really got to look at the, the gender issue. And there's, I think it might even be the day of the girl today or something. It, it is. It, it is. is. Yeah. 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 So, so it's good a good time to mention that gender review. So that's my one. All right, well, I might leap in second, if that's all right, Lisa. Like I said, I'm, I, I always pick a depressing one, so I'm going to try not to finish on one of mine this week. Um, but uh, as anyone knows, it's one of my pet hobbies is following the children in detention story because, uh, as, as I say, I think pretty much every week we need to keep it in the front of our mind. Um, the UN Human Rights Office has once again, although with ever-increasing uh, stridency, has called for uh, Australia to end its offshore detention uh, process, and I'll link to a specific article in The Guardian because the well, pretty much the primary reason they do it is because of the treatment of children in these detention uh, centre facilities. So, uh, you know, again, don't have much beyond that, but it, 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 something to keep in mind and keep in uh, keep in our advocacy and our work is that you know there are still on Nauru 40, uh, 47 children in uh, you know very very poor circumstances in Australian funded and run immigration detention facilities uh, and unfortunately um, yep, I'll probably have to keep rigging this up week after week until anything changes which yeah who knows when that will be. What have you got for us Lisa? Oh, look I feel like everyone will go and slit their wrists after this podcast. <laughs> or at least ban me from ever being on it again. We'll get oh, someone no, more fun no, next week. we're all as bad. Um, look, what I've put on mine is some videos rather than some um, articles. They're videos that Snake have made. The first one is about Barimba Childcare Centre. And the second one is, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Baba Pulam. Oh, that's a great video. Um, I've watched that one. Yeah. But the Barimba one was one that Geraldine showed at um, the Early Childhood Australia Conference. And it was really... It's incredibly powerful and moving when you watch it and then go, oh, right, okay, so that's one of the services that's actually going to be closing down or at the very least having a huge funding cut. And it just kind of like tells you how much we're actually going to lose. So, I, you know, they're only three or four-minute videos. I'd encourage people to go to that link. 
and to play them both and see what it is that we're actually talking about in the theory. Yeah, these centres in practice are, are, are pretty amazing what they do for their um, children, families and communities. Um, great. Well, we might, we've might we gone well over the hour mark. Sorry again, everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening to us uh, have the chat. Is but it we'll, well over? I think it's only a couple of minutes over there. I think we're fine. Let's see how quickly we can get through the, the final little bit on the, on the running sheet. But... Um, we yes, as usual, we would like to thank everyone who's left us a rating and review on the iTunes store. Uh, if you get a ch- if you're enjoying the podcast and get a chance to do that, it is really really appreciated. It sort of bumps us up the rankings and means more early childhood professionals can find us and and listen to us having our fun and exciting conversations. If you want to get in touch with us uh, directly and ask us any questions, suggest topics, or just uh, say how much fun we are, you can. Find us on Twitter at Early Edu Show. Excitingly, we are now on Facebook, uh, which I have set up and I'm trying to learn how to do a page on because I'm not a huge Facebook user. But um, you can find us at the the same handle, so facebook.com slash Early Edu Show. Um, we'll post the new episodes up there, and you know I think we'll all. And you can like us on Facebook. You That's can really like us. You can like, like our page. Yes, and then There's I think been lots of lots of likes this week. Thank you. Hundreds of people have liked us already. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, and I think we'll all, we're all we'll all be pretty responsive. So if you've got a comment, if you've got a question, you know, probably that's a good spot to go, and we will try and be as responsive as possible. Uh, but that's basically it for our episode. We'll be back next week with some more discussion. Like I said, please go back and listen to the ECA updates if you get a chance. It uh, was really uh, fun for me, at least hearing not you know not being there, hearing from Lisa and everyone else who was up there. So please go back and listen to those. But until we are back in your device of choice next week, it's bye from Liam. And from Lisa. And Leanne.